Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the August 6, 2023 session, focusing on Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Has everyone been fed? I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Daniel Glaze. And I'm Bert Montgomery. I like to eat. As you can tell, <laughs> I do it quite often. <laughs> Oh, and, and so I, we enjoy dining, whether we're dining at home or eating out, which we do as well, eating with friends. But one of the things I have noticed, we were out with some friends last night, is that some people are what I would call a food sharer and others are not food sharers. And so like last night, we each got something different. We were at a Thai restaurant and and I actually learned some things because I never would have ordered what some of the others at the table ordered. But we were reaching around and trying things off each other's plates. And I don't know. It, it, how do you feel about food sharing? I'm pro. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and part of it is I come by it honestly. Like my grew up in a big family and meals were sort of family style and just with so many siblings. Yeah, it's just natural. You pick and take off of others' plates. and But I still do that even with my family now. We we order our food, and then we you ask for a couple extra little plates so we can <laughs> divvy it up. And my daughters do this all the time. They will – someone will order a big salad, and then somebody will order a sandwich, and then they'll cut them in half and divvy it up. And, yeah, that's that's how God intended. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to speak as the troubled, very picky eater here. So like growing up and with my family who would get anything and everything on a menu, I had my select pieces that I would get and uh, things that I would get specifically French fries or chicken tenders. And when everybody would say, oh, those fries look good. Have a bite of that tender. I'm like, you've got a whole bunch of stuff in front of you. This is all I'm going to eat. Don't touch my food. <laughs> so when we got married, my wife learned that if she wanted, oh, she just maybe want a taste of a French fry or something. She needed to let me know in advance because that means I need to upsize to a, from a medium to a large. Because I've got my French fries I'm going to eat. <laughs> I've gotten better, by the way. But no, I, no. Picky eaters know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have, I'm not very passionate about this subject one way or the other, as my counterparts are here. But I don't mind sharing my food. As a mom, it just happens I don't know if that happens to dads as regularly, but my children just have taken off of my plate and they've done that since they could reach. So like share food. Oh, I had a choice. Okay. <laughs> but I will say on occasion, I will get something and it is, it's mine and I hide it and I don't let the children have it at all. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I'm, I guess I'm pro share. I'm just not super passionate about it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it does. Some of it has to do with how we're raised and other parts. It's just probably genetics. <laughs> yep. Yep. But it, it is interesting that we have these different habits around dining together. But it is a social act one way or the other, whether or not one chooses to <laughs> share one's food voluntarily or involuntarily. <laughs> <laughs> we have an interesting and very familiar text today that perhaps has some relevance for this conversation. Bert, would you help us get started? 
I will. And I'd like to start by bringing in a story that appears to have nothing to do with this, but it does, I promise. One of my most favorite non-musical moments from the original 1969 Woodstock Music Festival includes a wonderful soul named Wavy Gravy. And this moment was captured in the film in the in ground on film in the groundbreaking documentary movie and also the audio of it in the soundtrack. Now, Wavy Gravy, that's his name, or his given his chosen name, was a founding member of a traveling commune of clowns, entertainers, performance artists, and peace activists who were collectively called the Hog Farm because they started on an actual hog farm. On the surface, it may have just looked like a bunch of wild hippies in the 1960s wandering around the country in old painted school buses. Yet the hog farm was so much more than that. They were about spreading joy and hope through skits, through music and such, and about they were very serious about helping people in need along the way and doing their little part to make the world a better place in the midst of all the 1960s structural violence, prejudices, social class inequalities, racial violence, and what President Eisenhower had warned us about 10 years before, the military-industrial complex. So when some guys up in New York State got together and decided to throw a huge music festival for hippies, they contacted the Hog Farm community to work their magic as peace officers. Of course, nobody expected the number of people who would be who would inundate a tiny farming community in upstate New York. Roads completely closed down from traffic and abandoned cars. The organizers planned for maybe around 50,000 people. Instead, conservative numbers run from 400,000 to almost 500,000 people that showed up. It became a disaster area. And yet, to this day, it is remembered as a weekend of mud and hard rains and, yes, 1960s era free love and substance use, but a weekend of peace, love, and music and, quote, nothing but peace, love, and music, unquote. People took care of one another. There were no reports of violence, anarchy, or any type of destruction like we've seen at other festivals. No reports of violence, anarchy, or violence destruction that we find when twenty or 30,000 intoxicated fans show up at sporting events. Wavy Gravy and the Hog Farm was a significant, they were a significant part of promoting, modeling, and generating a peace-promoting, looking-out-for-one-another kind of spirit throughout the entire weekend. That favorite non-musical moment of mine involving Wavy Gravy getting up on stage and announcing, what we've got in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. The hog farm and other volunteers they recruited helped get food that was being brought in from the outside edges and getting it distributed to everyone inside and encouraging everyone to take a little and share with their neighbor and to look out for one another. I can't remember the first time I ever saw scenes from Woodstock movie on TV, but I was a child. I was under the age of 10, and it was an enormous, ground-shaking moment in my cultural and musical development, and yes, my spiritual development. From then on, 
whenever any of the passages in our Gospels about Jesus feeding masses would come up in Sunday school classes, Bible school, or the occasional sermon that I might have been paying attention to, my mind always went back to the Woodstock Festival, an enormous crowd of hungry folks, tired folks, crowded together, realizing that the structures that had been planned for were no longer functioning for them, and that nobody had prepared to feed so many, and they did not come prepared to feed themselves for a picnic. In the midst of an unimaginable moment that might have included possibilities of turning ugly, Jesus surprises everyone by taking what little is available and encouraging everyone to share and keep sharing and keep passing it on to the next person because sure enough, there ended up being more than enough for well over 5,000 people. And that only counts the men present. So there are many different perspectives on what we can, how we can look at this text, and many more that we'll have to wait for another time, which is fine, because stories about Jesus feeding people come up a lot. There are variations of stories feeding a large crowd several times in all four Gospels, at least six, two alone in Matthew, and two more in Mark, plus one each for Luke and John. Now compare that to only two birth narratives total, one only in Mark and one in Luke, nothing in Mark or John, that tells you something important. In other words, a story about Jesus feeding people is going to come up pretty often in our Bible studies. Today's is Matthew 15, and it's dealing with Jesus feeding 5,000. A biblical commentator by the name of Stan Duncan proposes two possible reasons for this. One is that maybe just Jesus just fed a huge mass of people one time, but the communities of evangelists who are writing these gospels and telling these stories were so overwhelmed and so taken by the experience that they reproduced the story six times in the four gospels. Another possible reason? Maybe it's just simply that Jesus spent far more time feeding people than we have historically given him credit. Either one is a credible viewpoint, and either one gives us lots of questions to ponder. Like how Alan Bream observes that when we give compassion freely, it begins to ripple out far beyond our ability to explain. It ripples out even beyond our ability to imagine those dreams of kindness and mercy that can flow through us, and they have an effect that only God knows. Or how Peter Wood points out, writing specifically about this story in Matthew, the 5,000, which comes just after John the baptizer's execution. Peter Wood writes, the primary miracle as I read it, from the demands of exhaustion, from the demands and exhaustion of pastoral ministry, is that a human being, it's Jesus, endangered by a head-hunting king, the human being in grief, endangered by a head-hunting king, is exhausted by his itinerant ministry, can still find the compassion in the midst of all of this to care about healing and feeding those needy crowds. Wow. Exhausted Jesus 
still managing to find compassion to heal and serve. Here's one last one. Pastor Roy Terry, in a piece titled, and this is going to get us in trouble, Welfare Jesus, notes that in this context, the wealthy and powerful had all the luxuries of Rome in life, while the poor, hardworking, and common folks were struggling for health care, a meal, or even basic human rights. And Jesus keeps giving it all away with no strings attached. It was in the context of a very cruel empire-sponsored violence and oppression among the people with tremendous social and economic inequalities and a Roman military industrial complex built to constantly keep expanding and dominating. And here was Jesus and his small ragtag group of disciples doing their part to heal, feed, and generate love, hope, peace, and community with one another. It seems to me that whatever explanations and scholarly lessons that we can glean from this text today, a generous, peace-loving hippie organizer named Wavy Gravy may be a far better model for us of what Jesus would actually do than most men in suits standing behind pulpits on Sundays telling us what all this is supposed to mean. Not to miss the point, but Wavy Gravy was also the official clown for the Grateful Dead. No way. So, yes, he was. Yes, know. he was. So we can't say he was altogether perfect. Yeah, man, if there was that. Nothing, it's the clown part. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nicely done. <laughs> And again, not to miss the point, but I've always wondered how this happened. Was it truly a miracle that there was just as bread and fish were distributed, they were just more and more kept appearing in the basket? Or did like everybody just take a little bit or like, how did it really happen? I love that you thought about um, this because I've spent entirely too many hours of my life thinking <laughs> about this. Yeah. What does it mean it multiplied? Like, or was, were as human beings sometimes do, were they, did they have some food in their pockets, but hey, here was this free meal. And so they started taking out what they were hoarding in their pockets, or did they just take a little bit? Either way, if that many people just took a little bit, that's a miracle too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know how. It, I don't know how it happened, but I can't stop thinking about that. But it is always a miracle, isn't it? When we look around and we are convinced that there is great scarcity. And then when we start living together and working together, we find great abundance. That is a miracle. I think it's just fascinating that fish was the protein in this meal because I grew up in Arkansas. And when we have a fish fry in Arkansas, Mm. there's going to be some fish eating. It's not like you just get a couple pieces, right? Mm -hmm. Fish fry, you're all in. You're like, load me up. And then you load up some more. It's like like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so when I see this story, I'm just like, it triggers all these memories of all these gatherings where we would have a big fish fry and everybody would come together and... That was an enormous amount of food because everybody 
would eat a ton. And so to me, I, I visualize this story as incredible abundance because it's a fish fry. Look at all, you're going to have to have a lot for everyone. But yeah, seriously, though, it, I liked, Bert, that you helped us see this not just as a miracle that happens and is told, but that it happened in the context of a time and a culture and a government that was incredibly oppressive and where people did not have a lot. And, and the, the contrast that it sets up mm -hmm. between, as you say, scarcity and abundance is very stark. It's very stark. And it's not the only place in Scripture we see that, right? And the scarcity is a created scarcity. Yes. For the benefit of some. Isn't it always? Yes. Yeah, so that, what that makes me think of is, and we do this today, we because we have so much a greater a mindset of scarcity than abundance, we pray to God, please provide the resources, please help us with this. And I think so often God wants to say, you already have it. Mm -hmm. that, that's, to me, just like verse 16 here. Verse 15, it says, let's send them away so they can go into the village and buy food. And Jesus says, no, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples like, Jesus, you got to feed them. He said, no, you do. You already have it. We do that even today, I think, mm -hmm. especially today. I can't help but think of other places in Scripture where the, kind of a similar dynamic happens, where there is this, this tension or contrast between scarcity and abundance, the quail and the manna in the wilderness, mm -hmm. where if you're in the wilderness, that's not exactly a supermarket. There's... <laughs> There are limits. And yet, God not only provides, but provides enough for them. And, and then we have what Jesus at the wedding, where the wine, waters turn to wine, and they have plenty. Or where the disciples are fishing, and he says, throw out your nets again, and suddenly they're full of fish. I don't know, it just feels like that this theme is a repetitive theme in Scripture and for the reasons you've said. I was just, go ahead, Nikki, you go. No, ahead. you go. The, the general explanation that many of us have heard growing up, and I don't, the general explanation is that simply Jesus worked a magical spell. Jesus did a miracle and did this so that everybody will know he's the Messiah. And the problem with that is that Jesus was also telling people, don't tell people who I am, <laughs> especially Mark, right? But in Matthew and others, it says, who do you say? I would, okay, now don't tell anybody. So it's kind of like a contradiction of, on the one hand, I'm doing all these miracles so people will know I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. And at another point, Jesus does, I don't remember what gospel, but Jesus says, y'all are following me in mass because I've done stuff for you. And at some point, it's going to, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And most people begin to flee. And so I think I'm not arguing that whether or not Jesus actually changed and multiplied, because certainly I believe he could, and he probably did. I'm not getting into that theological debate. But what I am arguing is that each time it is in the context of people being involved and God and the people figuring this out and doing it together. 
And that is the greater miracle, I believe, than Jesus just doing something to make himself tell people he's a miracle worker. Did that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's showing us a vision of what the kingdom is like. Yes. Yes, Jesus is modeling a kingdom where everybody, the hunger, and this is coming chapters after the Beatitudes, but this is coming where the hungry will be fed. And then in a few chapters later, he's going to say, did you feed the hungry? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a very true statement, that he is modeling for us what the kingdom looks like. I have five different threads running through my brain now, and I'm trying to figure out which one I want to follow. I love this idea of Jesus modeling for us what the kingdom looks like. I think all throughout his ministry, Jesus is trying to show everyone how to live an abundant life and that you do not have to have worldly abundance in order to live an abundant life because an abundant life doesn't come from things rather it comes from connection and relationship and dare I say wholesome living and I mean that in holistic living and so I I love this idea that Jesus is modeling for us what it looks like to live in to live from a mindset of abundance. Bert, I will push a little harder than you did on this idea of what was the actual miracle. Yes, growing up, I thought it was magic. I thought that Jesus did legit magic. Maybe. Why not? I also think that the reason that the disciples thought they didn't have any food is because they were focused only on the 5,000 men. There were a whole bunch of other women and children around. And Mm. I'm here to tell you those mamas packed food. Mm. Those mamas didn't leave home without food. And so I think that it is not heretical to say that the miracle could have been that Jesus inspired generosity among all of these people who lived with true, genuine scarcity every single day. Yeah. As a, those of us who are Americans or lived in the developing world are so far removed from this story. Y'all, yeah. I can skip grocery shopping this week and I can still feed my children for the yes. next two weeks. Now, mm-hmm. we'd get real creative by the end of those two weeks and we might have like green beans with jelly beans, but there's enough food in my house that nobody is going to go hungry. Mm-hmm. And so we are so far removed from that. Yeah. What Jesus inspires here is for people to share. Now, whether that's because he brought a whole bunch and said, y'all share, or he said, here, I'll share. Y'all want to share too? Either way, he was getting these people to share. And when we share, we are living an abundant life. And wouldn't that be an incredible miracle in our culture today? Right. So I love what you're talking about, trying to get us into that abundance mindset, because we are 
we are taught and we live out scarcity mindset. And I, I am chief sinner yes. in this. Yeah, same. Um, when we are trying to plan church activities, church budget, we think, y'all, we only have five loaves and two fish. How often do we say, y'all, they're going to be 12 baskets left over. Right. Let's just, all we got to do is set the table. God's going to do the cooking. Right. We just need to be open to the love and the grace, which are renewable resources. And, when and, and we... I think the participation, it, 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 yes. celebrating abundance doesn't mean we're stupid about money. Right. Like that, there is, it's a limited resource. It is not our only resource. Right. And so we have other resources that are not limited. And those things can bring deep abundance into our lives. And we don't, my kids and I, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to back up. My kids and I can sit down and have dinner at the table and I can serve the most nutritious, delicious, I would have bought it because I don't love to cook, delicious yeah. meal that they love. And if I don't engage them about their day, there is no abundance happening at that mm. table. I can, but what I do most Mondays, because Mondays are crazy days for us living in a blended family, that's the day that we switch. So a lot of times it's grilled cheese and soup from a can. Now it's Amy's soup. It's not so bad, but... I fix soup. I make some grilled cheese. I put a little extra butter on it because a little extra butter is a little extra love. And we sit down <laughs> at the table and we have abundance. Now, really, we're sitting in our living room because we're that family that sits around in the living room, not at the table. But the point stands. I can engage them about their day. I can engage them about who they are and what's going on with them right now. And we can laugh big belly laughs and there is great abundance around my canned soup and grilled cheese sandwiches mm. yeah i was gonna say we have glimpses of this in our culture we have it, glimpses of this in our churches and in our society and we see that when any like any type of catastrophe happens yes mm -hmm. immediately yeah, yeah. Everybody pours out, we're sharing, we're collecting water, we're getting food, we're getting diapers, and we're mm -hmm. just going to that moment. And we don't ask if anybody's deserving. We don't ask anything. We don't ask about their right. politics. We don't ask about their religion. We're giving them and making sure they're fed mm -hmm. and can get back, slowly begin to get back on their feet over a couple of weeks before we begin to pull out in the press, find something else, right? And none of us will quarrel about that. We're going to go do that, right? Yeah. But why can't we do that kind of stuff when there's no catastrophe? When we see people on the street or when somebody comes and asks for a few dollars for some food or when we, somebody comes to the church and asking for a night at a hotel room until they get a bus ticket to go to a relative's house or anything like that. It's kind of, yeah, they may be scamming us or they may be, are they the deserving? Do they really deserve this? They probably put themselves in this situation. And then suddenly it's kind of like we got a locker room full of supplies, but we're not going to open that up. So that it raises questions about our abundance and scarcity. And how can we change that paradigm so that we don't have to wait until utter catastrophe happens? 
One of the interesting things about this passage, I think it appears in verse 19, and we probably all recognized it or do recognize it when we hear it, but the verbs that are in verse 19 are communion verbs. It says that he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. Communion is something that we do together as people of faith, as congregations. And it is a reminder, I think, of this kingdom modeling that Jesus is doing and that we've been talking about. It is a reminder of so much of how we ought to be with one another in terms of thinking about generosity as opposed to scarcity. We titled this session, Has Everyone Been Fed? And that phrase actually came from my good friend, Jim Dant. Jim was pastor at Highland Hills in Macon for many years and while my family was there. And he had this habit, every time we had communion together, when we were finished, he would turn to the congregation and he would ask, has everyone been fed? It's, it really brought a spotlight on this notion that this is God's table, not our table, that there is plenty at this table. There is abundance and that everyone is invited. Has everyone been fed? May we all seek to live in generosity in the coming days from a God who has been so generous with us. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.